This episode of Exploration Radio has been made possible by the support of the Minerals Council of Australia. Find out why there's more to Australian mining and join the Friends of Australian Mining supporter network by visiting minerals.org.au. How many carats is this? 1,758, the largest diamond ever recovered in Botswana so far. Let's hold it together. There you go. This is a partnership. <laughs> Gosh, it's lovely being president. <laughs> Before I was president, nobody, nobody, nobody allowed me to do this. Yeah. Botswana was the poorest country before diamonds in Africa, and now it's in the top five. Botswana mine safely, they mine ethically, and the, the diamonds bring a lot back to the communities. It sustains the communities and the people and the country as well. I'm a product of Botswana, as an example. I've schooled in Botswana. My primary education has been done in, in, in Botswana. Secondary, tertiary, I went to the University of Botswana. So for me, it's, it's in my personal life, huge impact. And generally for Botswana, it's big because we've seen the roads in Botswana. We've seen the hospitals in Botswana, the schools, everything that we have right now is because of the governance that we've, we've gotten out of the diamonds that have been produced and sold. And that's why we're so keen to ensure that we unlock more value domestically for our people. So ethics is critical. Environmental stewardship is critical. Human rights and workers' rights are critical. And what you actually do with the proceeds of what you get is telling of who you are and what values you hold. This is a partnership between the company, uh, the country, the community. We want to leave a lasting legacy that is positive, uh, that has transformed the lives of, of many people who will go on then to continue to develop opportunities in this country uh, beyond the life of these mines. And I think together with this incredibly passionate team of people that I've had the privilege of working with over many, many years, you know, we can see that. And it's incredibly rewarding. This episode of the Exploration Radio podcast was made possible through sponsorship by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. To learn more about the AIG, the programs it supports, or to become a member, please go to aig.org.au. In 1991, a then 20-something-year-old Ira Thomas set off to explore for diamonds in the Canadian North. This led to her being involved in the discovery of what was to become the Divic Diamond Mine, Canada's second major diamond discovery, and arguably one of the world's richest diamond mines. Some 30 years later, Ira is still involved in the industry. Nowadays, she is the CEO of the Lucara Diamond Company. Ira was kind enough to sit down with me and share some of her recollections of the Canadian diamond rush and the discovery of Diavik, her subsequent nearly 30-year involvement in the industry as an explorer and developer, and the often untold story of diamonds. This is part one of our two-part interview with Ira. My name is Ahmad Salim, and you're listening to Exploration Radio, a podcast where we dig into the past, the present, and the future of exploration. Ira Thomas, welcome to Exploration Radio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Now, uh, before we get started, uh, Ira, in the research that I did, I found a um, a story which I want to kind of throw out just at the start, which was around the fact that in the summer of 1992, you had a northern sled dog named Thor. Is this correct? <laughs> that is correct. And what was the purpose of you having this dog on your trip up north? Well, you know, for a, a long time, our family has um, spent time in the north and we always had northern dogs. So Thor was a northern dog that we had basically acquired from a sled dog musher in Yellowknife in mm -hmm. uh, around 1990. 
And so as I was, you know, basically moving into a career of exploration, the family dog used to get to come with me on out into the field. Um, and he was my sort of tent mate for my early exploration days. The story that I read was that Thor had a habit to uh, run off uh, several times. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was, a, he's a typical Northern dog. So he was a real mutt, but he's mostly husky, but he also had a little bit of wolf in him. So he was very well suited to the Arctic environment. But one of the things that Thor did not like was, you know, loud noises like lightning or gunfire. And on one particular day in our exploration camp up at Lac de Gras, a couple of the younger geologists had decided to take some target practice with one of the rifles out on the, these big sandy eskers. And they, so they were shooting cans on the esker and this spooked my rather high strung dog and he bolted off across the tundra. And I thought, well, he'll, he'll eventually make his way home, but he didn't return that night. And the next day, there was still no sign of him and I was starting to become increasingly distressed about it and convinced our helicopter pilot to help me search for him on uh, basically on the end of the second day. And we weren't able to locate him. And I'd really assumed at that point that he'd been, uh, you know, encountered some wolves or, uh, you know, a grizzly bear and something, you know, bad had befallen him on his, his, you know, adventure out in the, out in the field. But then, you know, as luck would have it, I got this very, very um, sort of odd uh, radio message. Um, and in those days, in the early 1990s, uh, you know, we, this was long before, you know, satellite communication That's and right. cell phones. And so we did rely on XBS radios to actually communicate between these camps. And just to set the scene a little bit, this was a camp that was located, you know, basically in the center of Canada's um, Arctic territory, the Northwest Territory. So it was about 350 kilometers from the, the, the nearest town with no road access, completely remote. And so our communication was by radio and I, I got this radio message that I was to try and call home. And so I, I did call home and was able to get through via our radio connection through to my mother, who at this stage was in a complete panic. And she wanted to know that I was okay. And I said, well, I'm fine. What's, what's the issue? Well, the issue is I got a call from someone purporting to have Thor. And they would not tell me where they actually were. And, I, and, and of course, my mother was so perplexed because she knew the dog was with me. So how would they have the dog? And where was I? And when I, you know, my mother asked if they knew me, they said, we have no idea who that is, but she's not with your dog and we have your dog. But sorry, we can't tell you where we are because it is strictly uh, confidential. So it was a very strange exchange. My mother, you know, was uh, distressed that something bad had happened to me. And as it turned out, Thor had wandered, and I say wander, it was really journey, a journey. He journeyed uh, about 40 kilometers to the west of our camp and arrived in a competitor's camp. Excellent. Um, and this happened to be the um, where the first discovery of, of diamonds in Canada had been made uh, by a, comp a little company called Diamet Minerals. They had made this discovery in, in November of 1991. It was huge news for Canada. It was begin the beginning of a, of a mad staking rush for diamonds. We'd acquired, you know, the, the, the land around them and were exploring that land package. And everything was extremely secretive and extremely competitive. And the assumption by this exploration team at Diamet is that we had deliberately sent Thor as a spy dog to find out uh, what was going on in their camp. And by sending him in, you know, we would then be logically making a request to kind of come and collect him. And in and, and doing so, we'd learn, you know, all their secrets about what, what they were actually finding uh, on their claim block. So it was a very funny exchange. Um, you know, eventually my mother, you know, ascertained who was calling. She called me. We figured out where the dog was. 
They would not allow us to fly over in a helicopter and pick him up. Instead, they sent him out on a, on a float plane 350 kilometers to the south. And then I had to uh, kind of negotiate some concessions from my employer to figure out how I was going to get him back all the way from Yellowknife back into camp. So he became famously known as Thor the spy dog. And um, it's funny that you bring that up because he he did, you know, then eventually get celebrated on um, a, a radio show hosted by CBC here in Canada by the late, great Peter Zosky, who, um, you know, created this short story around Thor the spy dog. So Ira, it's been a few decades now. Uh, I think you can come clean <laughs> that, you know, the real reason you sent Thor there was to do espionage, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the only logical conclusion you yeah, can get absolutely. out of the story. Absolutely. It was a Maybe. huge opportunity. I had to sacrifice my best friend to to go on, uh, on an important uh, corporate mission. That's right. I mean, but they say, you know, the best things come from sacrifice. Unfortunately, Thor was it. <laughs> I just think that's a great story. And this, the reason why I wanted to start off with that story is, yeah, I wanted to dive into kind of the early 90s Canadian diamond rush, so to speak. Now, for people that didn't live through it, this was really a modern day kind of Yukon gold rush or Californian gold rush. So you kind of painted the picture of, you know, like how secretive people were, how intense they were. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your recollections of that time? And, you know, you and your father were kind of at the forefront of the people that went out. You know, what do you remember about that time? Uh, I remember a lot. I mean, it was so exciting. And even, you know, 35 years later, we kind of look back on it and sort of realize that we were living through history. And it was extraordinary because, you know, this the story for me actually began from South Africa. I was actually backpacking with my sister through Southern Africa, having finished my degree in geology and spent a summer working in the Arctic looking for gold. And then there were really no jobs. So I decided to go off on a, an adventure traveling with my sister mm -hmm. with the aspiration to do some postgraduate work uh, somewhere in the world. And I ultimately settled on South Africa. So, you know, in that November of 1990, when diamonds were discovered at Back to grab by Chuck Fipke and Diamond Minerals, it sparked a huge amount of interest for people that were working in the North. But the story really hadn't broken kind of, you know, throughout Canada or even globally at that point. You know, I got this call from my father, who is uh, an avid explorer and uh, had been exploring in the North for a good portion of his career. And he called and said, diamonds have been discovered in Canada. And I said, Dad, are you completely off your rock? I mean, I just finished my degree in geology, and I know for a fact that there are no economic deposits of diamonds in, in Canada. This must be, you know, this must be a, a joke. And he said, it's not a joke. It's real. It's it's happened at Lac de Gras in the Northwest Territories, and, and you got to get home. Forget postgraduate work. You got to come home and, and help me uh, with my little company, Aber Resources. We're going to stake a big land position, and we're going to go look for diamonds. And so you know, I literally got on a plane and came back to Canada, arrived at my dad's little office with maps rolled out everywhere. And he was organizing staking crews. It's the middle of the winter. And this is, you know, no easy feat. We sought out, you know, experts, um, you know, from around the world that, you know, knew something about diamond exploration. Ironically, a lot of that expertise came from South Africa, where I, you know, had just been. And we ended up, you know, hiring and partnering with a, a fellow by the name of Dr. Chris Jennings, who was, you know, at the time, one of the, the world's sort of experts in diamond exploration. And he sort of steered us in the right direction based on his experience of exploring in Northern Canada for, for diamonds almost a decade earlier. And we acquired this big land package and there it uh, began. But what was interesting is that, you know, we spent every last penny in the treasury of the company at the time. It didn't have a lot of money in the treasury and because we thought, well, you know, the, the, the world is going to go mad. But it actually took the better part of a year before everyone else caught up. So, you know, at that point, you know, we'd um, we'd gone out and, and, and it actually secured a joint venture with the world's largest mining company, uh, Rio Tinto. Mm -hmm. And uh, because we really needed sponsorship and money to get going with our efforts. And so about a year later, more than... 65 million acres of ground had been acquired for diamond exploration in Northern Canada, which is larger than the size of the United Kingdom. 
So it was incredible. You had camps uh, going up everywhere and crews being brought in. And, you know, all told, I think between 1992 and, and 1996, there was something like, you know, two and a half billion dollars spent on grassroots diamond exploration. And that ultimately resulted in the discovery of two world-class mines. The first was a caddy found by our neighbors. And, and then we found Diavik, which was Canada's second diamond mine. And then eventually the uh, Gachaque project to the south of us uh, and Snap Lake were also found a couple of years later. So it was tremendously exciting. It was like the Wild West. Well, I think that's part of the, the story is that, you know, this is a part of the world that you know very few people go to at the best of times. And this place went from you know, a few people kind of floating around to within a year or a couple of years, billions of dollars being spent, every man and their dog, every person in society was interested in kind of going and trying to find out what was going on in this part of the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and, you know, it started out in British Columbia. We have, a you know, a lot of mining companies that hail from British Columbia and Canada. But it started out as what everyone referred to as a house street promote. You know, nobody believed it. It was it was definitely too good to be true. Mm-hmm. In Canada, we didn't sort of understand or appreciate the potential for diamonds. So it, it took a bit of time. But in true Canadian fashion, once it was validated, it was realized that not only, you know, were there diamond deposits, but these would eventually turn out to be some of the world's largest uh, and richest diamond deposits. It created a whole new industry for Canada and put Canada on the map very quickly as the third largest, um, uh, you know, and most important diamond producing region in the world next to Botswana and Russia. So I want to go back to that because that's part of the research for this. I went back and looked through some kind of articles when this story was first breaking, the Diamet story and, uh, you know, people starting to slowly release results, you know, even you guys kind of pegging the ground. Yeah, there was a serious amount of skepticism about whether this was true or not, or was this another Brex scandal, you know, that was still kind of hanging around and people have still been burned by that. Because the background to it, you know, which I think is worth mentioning is that De Beers had explored in Canada for years prior and had not really found anything. And yet all these kind of small companies, which you know, didn't really have a pedigree really in this space, were all of a sudden you know, releasing all these results. Yeah, no, it's an important observation. And I mean, I really believe that Canadians were successful. I mean, first off, Canadian companies are some of the most successful explorers in, in the world. And I think that's well established. But I think what was really important in this case is because we didn't have a history in diamond exploration and it wasn't a commodity that we knew that much about, we didn't know enough to be biased against the discoveries were what we were making. And what I mean by that is, you know, De Beers, who'd been obviously highly successful in finding economic diamond deposits in other parts of the world, primarily South Africa, That's right. had a prescribed model or view of an economic diamond deposit. And it needed to be a certain size and it needed to be a certain grade or, or there was no point um, in, uh, you know, evaluating it. And this is an example where, as Canadians, we didn't have any bias because this wasn't, you know, a commodity that we had expertise in. So, for example, what I mean by that is, you know, De Beers had been exploring there for decades, but they were using that South African model where they were looking for large kimberlites in excess of, you know, five or 10 hectares. And that was kind of a minimum criteria for actually, you know, drilling a hole and testing an anomaly. The Canadian companies, we didn't have that view. Why does it have to be big? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we were focused on the science that was a Emerging at the time, we were partnered and working with a number of prominent academics, including the late uh, Dr. John Gurney, who really was the guru behind, you know, modern day diamond exploration. That's right. Using mineral chemistry and geophysics and different techniques, but he was really a, a specialist in the geochemistry of kimberlites and kimberlite exploration. So we were, we were using a lot of his research to kind of guide us. And while De Beers, you know, would not be um, interested in testing, you know, any kind of an anomaly that didn't have a certain size, we would go ahead and test it as long as it had the right chemistry. Mm-hmm. And we would test it even if it was under a large lake, because until, you know, we had a sense of what the grade and value of the rock was, 
we felt it was worth pursuing. So I think it's, you know, an example where taking that, you know, the South African model and trying to, you know, transport it to Canada didn't really work well. You know, what we found uh, in Canada is what we, a lot of the Kimberlites were not particularly large, but what we, we didn't have in size, we made up for in grade. So A154, for example, which was the primary discovery at Diavik, is a tiny little kimberlite. That's all right. Know, it's 150 meters across at its widest point, and yet it's almost 1,000 carats per 100 tons, as opposed to the average grade of a South African kimberlite, which is 50 carats per 100 tons. So That's they right. turned out to be incredibly rich ore bodies, despite the fact that they were they were small. And that, of course, is what guided the economics and made these deposits valuable. You know, the, in the De Beers model, you would have never drilled A154 because it just simply wasn't big enough to be economic using that South African interpretation. So it was an example, I think, where ignorance was really helpful. <laughs> the lack of knowledge <laughs> was really helpful. What you just said, I think, is really valuable because, you know, like when you kind of look at that period of time, you don't quite understand why, you know, because De Beers had spent a lot of money, you know, they spent a lot of time. But all the things that you said is, is, you know, the ingenuity, I think that, you know, people like yourselves and Chuck Fipke and Stu Bluson and these guys applied is, you know, they really took that technology and adapted it to kind of the geological history as well of Canada, which is fundamentally different from Southern Africa. Absolutely. And yeah, and that was really kind of the ingenuity that was applied. And also the fact that to figure out how to work in a place like the Northern Territories, I think the real kind of work you guys did is, is try to figure out how that puzzle in Canada look different and how you could try to figure that out? Uh, absolutely. I think that is something that Canadians are particularly good at. Um, you know, it's important to have an open mind in exploration. It's important not to be too prescriptive in your in your outlook and your criteria. And, you know, serendipity plays a, a major role in exploration. You set out looking for, for one thing and often find something else. And so to have an open mind and be open to possibilities uh, and possibilities that are different, um, I think it's really essential. And I think Canadians, you know, do that particularly well. So in saying that, uh, Ira, the, the obvious question I have is, did you guys have a tough time selling to investors about what you were doing? Did people believe your story right away? Or were they really skeptical? You know, like how difficult was it for you guys to actually fund what you needed to do, considering that you didn't have a pedigree? And, you know, you're trying to sell people on something very, very different, which they're not really sure of at that point. It was incredibly difficult. And the, I mean, the reason we ended ended up partnering with Rio Tinto was because we basically ran out of options. We could not finance Aber Resources, the land package that we'd acquired. You know, the, the, the investors at that stage, you know, were still skeptical. They weren't confident that there were other discoveries to be made in the North. And in the end, you know, we convinced a, a major mining house on the basis of the technical information that this was a project with significant potential. But in hindsight now, I mean, what we, we we look at it and, and, you know, we try not to dwell on this too much. You know, we ended up selling a majority 60% interest in a, what has turned out to be a $15 billion asset for $10 million of expiration investment. <laughs> So, I mean, hindsight's a beautiful thing. Yes, um, but I mean, but, but this is exactly the point I kind of wanted to get from you is that there is this concept that, you know, there's obviously the exploration part, but there's the other part, which is the development part. And, you know, like, how do you actually sell it to investors and you fund it and, and all of that stuff? And you guys were, you know, like really on the, not just literally on the edge of the world, but figuratively, you know, technically you were kind of on the edge of the world as well with techniques you were kind of trying to develop on the fly. And that's really the point that I wanted to kind of dig into is the investor side is just as skeptical as probably the technical side is about what you guys are doing. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, let's not forget that you know, expiration is 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 risky, and diamond expiration is the riskiest. You know, one in a thousand kimberlites turn out to have any economic potential at all. That's an excellent point as well. You know, you can you can spend tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, to actually determine whether or not a diamond discovery is going to be economic. Because unlike other commodities like gold or base metals, where you can look up the price of that commodity in a newspaper every day, you can't 
do that with diamonds. There's thousands of different classifications of diamonds. Every diamond is unique and they all have different price points. So in order to be confident in the average value of a carat of diamonds in your deposit, the only way to do that is to take a, you know, a large bulk sample, which is extremely costly. So, you know, not only do you have to work out grade and tonnage like you do with every other kind of deposit, you have to work out that value piece. And that's where it, it gets extremely expensive. And I should say that it's worth mentioning that a lot of diamond projects kind of fail at that bulk sampling stage, you know, because they can have the grade and they can have the tonnage, but it's really how that grade and tonnage comes out of a mining volume. You're just not going to be able to run an economic mine in that sense. Absolutely. It all comes down to, to rock value. And, you know, I've I've had the good fortune of, of being involved in, in, a, in a couple of fantastic diamond deposits and, and Divic being, you know, the first where it really had grade on its side. I mean, the quality of the diamonds is very nice, but they, they tend to be small, high quality diamonds and the, and the deposit kind of shines on its rock value because it's up to, you know, a thousand carats per hundred tons or 10 carats a ton with an average value of a hundred dollars a carat. So, you know, you've got a thousand dollar rock similarly in, in the sense that, you know, Kuroi, the diamond deposit that I'm working on today is a project that we built eight years ago and is now considered one of the world's highest margin diamond mines, it gets by on its diamond value. It's actually quite low grade. You know, we're only 11 or 12 carats per hundred tons at Kuroi. Wow. However, we have diamonds which are, are large and high quality and they are selling for closer to $600 a carat. So once again, you know, that rock value comes up to the point where it's economic and, and high margin. So yeah, diamonds are interesting that way. There's a lot of variability at play, but that's one of the reasons it's, it's such a fun, you know, commodity to be involved. So the other question I had is, so Ever Resources, the company that you know your father was kind of uh, started off with, yeah, they weren't really set up to explore for diamonds, were they? Because prior to that, they were doing something else, and I can't quite remember. Um, but yeah, but they weren't in the diamond game at all. It was set up to explore for other things, wasn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Ever was a company that my father founded in the mid '80s, and it was set up to explore floor primarily for gold, but also for nickel and copper in the Northwest Territory. So my father had spent a good portion of his career in exploration in the North, and that really was his focus area. And when diamonds were discovered, you know, he'd had really no prior experience with diamonds, but he did understand the North. He knew how to stake ground. And what he immediately did was, you know, went off to find uh, someone who did know something about diamonds. And that turned out to be Dr. Chris Jennings. Why not De Beers? How come you guys didn't partner with De Beers? <laughs> well, that's a good question. You know, I, I think at the time, what was so kind of fascinating is that, you know, De Beers eventually did ramp up and acquire big land positions um, as part of the staking rush. But you're absolutely right. And what you said earlier is that they'd had previously moved through that area with exploration efforts, you know, almost 10 years earlier, and had basically written that part of the North off and were instead focused on other parts of Canada, like Ontario, where they eventually did discover and develop a mine called Victor in the James Bay Lowlands of Northern Ontario. So De Beers had kind of, you know, moved in a different direction. We did end up partnering with De Beers and their Canadian subsidiary on some other sort of exploration efforts later. But at the time, you know, De Beers was really not a major contender and they really came to the party late. And in fact, That's their right. first kind of big investment in the Lactograt area was in the acquisition of a company called Windspear, which was also a company that we were partnered with on the Snap Lake project. And they ended up purchasing uh, Windspear and, and developing that project. But that was, you know, a few years later. And I think they were, there was a certain amount of skepticism at the beginning. And, and then they realized this is real. And so they were a little bit late getting back into the play. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I just find that, I think, storyline interesting because I mentioned that, you know, we're trying to piece together the story about how diamonds were explored. 
and obviously DBS is a big player in that. You know, for all intents and purposes, you know, I think they've done a lot of good work exploring in different parts of the world. But yeah, in Canada, it just seems like you know they really snatched defeat from the jaws of victory in a lot of ways. Kind of plenty of opportunities to to change their mind and clear the sheet and see what the data was kind of telling them. But for whatever reason, you know, they just kind of really, I think, missed the call in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, I think that they kind of had the business to themselves for so long, particularly in terms of expiration. I think they just underestimated kind of the response from the Canadian junior expiration sector. And really, that was what, what, what was so amazing. I mean, these junior companies were trading with ridiculous market caps. And of course, you know, this was at the earliest stage before anybody really knew what anybody had. So, you know, De Beers rightfully saw, you know, a huge amount of risk and it was difficult to figure out who was going to end up with the economic discoveries. But Akadi and, and Diavik, of course, were discoveries that were made early on in the cycle. But, you know, I think that uh, you know, what was really um, an important catalyst for, you know, these junior explorers was, you know, the work that and research that was coming out of the University of Cape Town with Dr. John Gurney and the availability of that information. You know, a classic example where, you know, you kind of use that knowledge and research and you apply it in an exploration setting and lo and behold, it actually works and you find something. So this was really the first time that this understanding of about the origin of diamonds, you know, how to explore for diamonds was readily available, you know, publicly. And that was a huge advantage for the, the Canadian companies that were out there exploring. And, and, you know, again, junior companies really have the ability to move quickly and to assess large pieces of ground efficiently. Those are, are not easy things for big companies, you know, whether you're a De Beers or a Rio Tinto or a, or a BHP, you know, those companies tend to move a lot more slowly. So in some ways, you know, it really was fortuitous that the, the junior companies kind of moved in because I think it, it led to a kind of a rapid assessment of these large land packages. And, and you know, those were ultimately acquired by these these larger companies, including De Beers. And I think, you know, the other point about the, the whole Canadian industry and when it kind of started is the point you made around the fact that, you know, like De Beers really had a, a stranglehold on this industry, kind of the whole value chain of the industry and the development of the Canadian diamond industry, you know, did a lot to kind kind of break that that stranglehold that De Beers had as well. And, you know, the benefit of that was that you got, you know, companies like BHP and Rio Tinto, which are largely Australian companies, which didn't really have a pedigree in diamonds kind of come into this space and do things a little bit different from De Beers. And that gave, you know, I think it's probably not a, a ridiculous thing to say, but, you know, the Canadian diamonds seem to attach this premium because they were not as part of that De Beers chain uh, and, you know, and the, and the issues around kind of African diamonds that were, that were kicking around at that time. So, so you know, so not only did you, I think kind of catch the technical wave at the right time where Dr. Gurney's research was coming out and it was all really applicable and he was teaching people how it could be used in that sense. Uh, but I think the industry, once it was set up, kind of caught that really economic wave as well that allowed it to be probably a lot more viable than you know if it was maybe in another part of the world. Yeah, the timing was perfect for sure. I mean, I would say that you know the Australians were actually the first to kind of break rank with the Central Selling Organization. They were the first to kind of really challenge that paradigm and, you know, went independent with the Argyle diamond mine. And, and that sort of, you know, that discovery was in the late seventies. And I think that certainly was something that helped, you know, the Canadians get there. And obviously with BHP partnering with Diamet on the first Canadian diamond mine, you know, made the decision very early on that they would not be selling their diamonds through De Beers or the Central Selling Organization. So that really paved the way for other producers coming behind them to also look at the opportunity of selling um, independently. And you're right, that really led to, you know, a big 
kind of transformation that I think is still kind of upon us in the diamond business where, you know, De Beers at that time, you know, still controlled more than 50% of market share. They now control well less than that. And, you know, Canada has um, really risen to to be one of the, the world's most important kind of global producers. We are, you know, a number of those mines now are, are heading into their into their sunset years, but it, it really did kind of shake up that traditional paradigm and, and led to sales, independent sales, and, and also sales ultimately through what we call tenders, which is a very a much more open and kind of transparent way of, of, of selling diamonds. And yeah, you know, at that time, I think you know, there was a Canadian industry that really kind of pioneered uh, you know, some of the learnings out of the Kimberley protocol around authenticity of diamonds and how you could kind of see that, I guess, the history of that development of that diamond or the production of that diamond. And you could, as a consumer, be sure that you were getting something authentic that hadn't been cleaned in some way of its kind of history and things like that. And I think all of these kind of innovations, you know, were quite important at that time, because as you mentioned, you know, up until that point, you know, it was basically one player that controlled the full value chain, uh, aside from kind of small players like Australian companies that were doing things on their own side. But I think honestly, they probably didn't have the market share to really kind of push the industry in any direction. But it was really the Canadian industry that came in and took that slice away from De Beers and allowed the industry to become a lot more, I think, transparent and a lot more willing to try new things and techniques and and go down that path. Definitely. And that's certainly a journey we're still on. I mean, Canada is very proud of the role it played and in the Kimberley process legislation, which was really an effort to stop the trade in conflict diamonds kind of globally. Consumer interest today is still very focused on diamond provenance. You know, they want to know that they're supporting responsible companies that care about the environment, that care about their social commitments to local communities. And, and they, you know, at the end of the day are well-governed companies. And so Canada certainly does have, a, I think, a you know, a very proud and important contribution to all of that. And, you know, I certainly see that as a key value driver for this business uh, going forward as well. What's your outlook on the Canadian industry? Do you think that there's still plenty of potential in Canada? Do you see that the industry is still growing? Because as you mentioned, you know, like some of the initial discoveries are now kind of at at closer to the end of their life rather than the start of their life. As a practitioner, as someone that kind of knows the industry in depth, what's your view on it? Do you think there's still plenty of potential in Canada? I still think there's potential in Canada. Absolutely. I think uh, that, you know, we have a lot of challenges with, with diamond exploration in Canada because a lot of the most prospective geology is incredibly remote with, you know, limited or no infrastructure. So it's extremely expensive. And, you know, we kind of moved from that, that era, a huge number of successes and the, and the development of four world-class diamond mines into a, a quieter period um, where it has been, you know, generally more challenging for the smaller exploration companies to really attract the investment capital um, for diamond exploration. But there's a few stalwart players still out there, including a company that I am a big shareholder of and an advisor to a company that was started by my father um, and it's called North Arrow Minerals and they're continuing to invest in exploration and they have really, I think, an exciting project in the high Arctic now that is one of the, the largest undeveloped diamond resources in, in, in the world. Um, and it has a preponderance of these very unusual yellowy orange diamonds that we think could really help to drive the value of this deposit. And it's kind of at the bulk sample stage where they, they need to invest now to collect a larger sample to see whether or not those yellowy orange diamonds continue into the larger stone sizes. So, you know, but that project has has really progressed very slowly because the appetite for diamond exploration um, as an investment opportunity is really quite limited around the world. But I do feel uh, now, as we've seen the diamond market kind of stabilize, particularly in the last six months with diamond prices having recovered to kind of pre-pandemic levels. And I think a growing realization globally um, that a lot of these, you know, larger diamond deposits are are really heading, heading into their, you know, final years of production. And in fact, the Argyle mine that we talked about uh, a moment ago, it closed its doors last year. That's right. I was going to say as a 
the world's biggest source of canary diamonds, you know, you guys are probably sitting in a pretty good spot if you have the next kind of source of these yellowy orangey diamonds. Absolutely. And we believe we do. And I think the timing for that is going to come right here very soon because we, the fundamentals around the business now have, have really changed. You know, diamond deposits are rare. They're becoming rarer. There've been no major discoveries in the last, you know, 15 to 20 years that really can move the dial. We certainly see global supply on the decline. Demand, by contrast, we expect to continue to pick up. And this is based on the fact that diamonds are kind of an interesting commodity because though they are a mined commodity, they don't actually behave like a mined commodity because they're a consumer marketed product. So if you have a kind of a positive view on, you know, world GDP growth, even in a modest way, then you you need to have a positive outlook on, on, on diamond prices. And I guess just as a, a final comment, we've seen, you know, very recently, the, you know, the world's largest leading luxury brand, Louis Vuitton, who we've partnered with um, on a couple of projects um, from our Karoi Diamond Mine, they have made a very deliberate move to expand their exposure to diamond jewelry. And they've launched their first ever high jewelry line just last year. They've recently acquired Tiffany. Their view is that diamonds and diamond jewelry has really underperformed other luxury products and and they see this as a huge opportunity for them. So I think when you see successful companies like that making a strategic decision to uh, increase their exposure, it's a very good sign. And um, yeah, we really feel that there will be interest now coming back into the space after a very long kind of malaise. And we're, we're starting to, to see that interest and in, in some of these smaller exploration companies pick up. And I hope that's going to lead to more investment and, and ultimately, um, more discoveries. And, you know, we're continuing to invest uh, in a very modest way in exploration ourselves um, as Lucara in, in Botswana. So is that a part of the reason for setting up Lucara, that you think that there is this next wave of diamond, um, I guess, demand being driven by consumers and, and organizations that are going to start trying to market different products in that sense? Yeah, listen, we set up Lucara almost 12 years ago now, really, um, as our first kind of foray into diamonds in Africa and Botswana in particular. And it was really, you know, after spending almost, you know, 16 years with Aber and which went on to become Harry Winston. I eventually left to form my, you know, first diamond exploration company, called, which was called Stornoway, That's which fine. explored in Northern Canada and then ultimately acquired an asset in Quebec, which has been developed into Quebec's first diamond mine. And at, at that point, um, you know, my my business partner, Catherine McLeod, and I were, were were thinking about, you know, the next great frontier for diamond exploration. And we managed to convince uh, Lucas Lundin, um, our good friend and, and partner at Lucara, to, to join us in, you know, in an effort to find a diamond asset in, in Botswana. And Botswana, you know, outside of Canada, in my opinion, you know, these are two of, of the world's most most um, geologically uh, rich and well-endowed jurisdictions for diamonds and diamond exploration. And, you know, we had an opportunity to get involved in Botswana and we've been there ever since. And, you know, looking forward to uh, hopefully finding other assets in Botswana that we can bring into our portfolio. So one question I have is, you know, you kind of mentioned that you've gone from Aber to Stornoway to now Lucara. Is there a reason why you've gone more into the development challenge of setting up these companies? Because you know, Aber was, I guess, more focused on exploration. Obviously, it did develop things as well. Uh, but Stornoway and Lucara now really kind of, you know, asset driven or mine driven kind of companies. Is there a reason why you went into this path? Well, you know, I think it's kind of a perhaps a natural evolution of, you know, any career in mineral exploration and mining. I think you, you know, as a geologist, I, I really started out with a focus on finding that treasure. Um, you know, I loved uh, exploration and you know, spending my my summers and field seasons, you know, in the in the remote parts of the Canadian Arctic, you know, exploring. Um, 
And having had the opportunity to be involved in a world-class discovery like Divic was just an incredible training ground for me. So I was able to watch a project go from, you know, the earliest stages of staking claims through to making a discovery and ultimately developing uh, that project into a a world-class mine. So I think for me, um, you know, while I initially wanted to get back to exploration, I really started to realize that that yes, finding the deposit is is obviously a critical piece. But you know what I learned, uh, I think a hard lesson I learned at Stornoway um, is that finding the mine, although that's incredibly difficult and the odds are against you, is not necessarily the most challenging piece. You know, shepherding or stewarding that discovery on to be developed into an economic deposit that actually benefits you know your shareholders, your local stakeholders, and uh, your your communities of interest, that is, you know, an incredibly challenging thing to do. You know, I've seen many, uh, an economic deposit, it doesn't pay a dividend to its shareholders because it's either been developed at the wrong time or, you know, the structure of the company wasn't managed effectively or efficiently. And those shareholders at the end of the day didn't realize a return when they should have. And so for me, moving on to that challenge, I think was was important. Stornoway was an example of that, where we had a great asset that at the end of the day did get developed as an economic deposit. And I'm very proud of the fact that it employs, you know, 350 people in Quebec. But unfortunately, that company did not make money for its shareholders. So I think getting more involved in, in, in the business and understanding where we want to go strategically and how you grow that company and business over the longer term became uh, something that I was, I, I, I was really interested in. And also realizing just how much of a positive impact, you know, the these types of businesses and operations can have on your local community of in, uh, communities of interest has been incredibly rewarding to see and be a part of. So I think my interest in the space and the business has evolved. Mm-hmm. And today, what really gets me up in the morning is, is knowing that we are positively impacting the lives of 1,200 employees and their families of these communities and also our, our partner governments. And, you know, how can we build on that? What more can we do? And, um, you know, that's, that's the fun part. You've led me beautifully into this uh, next question, which is that, you know, when you're an explorer, there's this intrinsic drive to to find things. You know, that's what kind of keeps a fire burning. You know, when you go from being exploration driven to kind of development driven, you don't have the same kind of, you know, like feedback to kind of keep that fire going when you're doing the development side. So is it more the aspect of putting the deal together or trying to uh, sort out the strategic side so it fits both investors and local stakeholders that really gets you involved or really kind of interests you from the the development side now? Yeah, you know, I think it's the leadership piece. I think it's it's really recognizing the, the importance of putting a team of people together that at the end of the day can be successful because at the end of the day, it always does come down to people. You can have the best assets on the planet, mm-hmm. but if you don't have the right skills around the table and, and more importantly, you don't have the right mindset around the table and a group of people that can actually work together to achieve you know, a common goal um, or objective, then you're never going to be successful. And I think that's what I realized is that it's not just about one discovery. It's not, it's, it's, it's never about you know, one person. It's really about how you put all these pieces together. And and for me, that became, I think, the challenge and, and also the greatest learning. And so to be able to maximize the value of these of, the, of these deposits, you've got to be able to do all of that. So do you think as explorers, we sometimes lose sight of that? You know, there's obviously the technical challenge, but there's also the non-technical challenge of you know, finding the right people, making sure the team works, you know, like how you interact with investors, how you interact with local communities, all of that stuff. Do you think sometimes explorers, we're sometimes a little bit too blinded by the technical challenge in front of us and ignore some of these things? No, I think it's essential for an explorer to kind of <laughs> ignore some of those things. I think I think it's about an evolution, you know, from exploration through to development and, and into a more mature kind of strategic outlook for your business. And, and quite often that's why 
why you see a lot of discoveries get sold, right? I mean, they are different skill sets and, and, and companies don't always evolve to be able to move seamlessly from exploration into development and beyond. And I think for me, I saw that as a really interesting opportunity and challenge, but I also recognize the perseverance and tenacity and dogged pursuit of a discovery is, is a very important and very specific skill set, you know, well-suited, I think, to, to the junior explorers. It's not to say a big company can't do it, mm-hmm. but, but, but I think that is a very different kind of mindset. Now, I think explore codes today are, are very different from where they were 30 years ago. They, they do have to be sensitive to um, the environment and, and which, you know, where they're exploring and, and ensure that they've got buy-in from local stakeholders. So they do have to do some of that, there's no question. But I think it is it is not always guaranteed that a company is going to want to be all of those things. And and sometimes the right decision is to, is to sell the asset. I think that's a that's a really important point. I think as organizations or even as teams or anything, I think you just have to be honest about the fact that sometimes what makes you successful in the past may not make you successful in the future. So either you have to bring other people in or uh, go back to doing you know what you were doing in the past. Uh, try not to be something different in that sense. And I think there is a serious amount of value sometimes that's lost in this industry because people maybe hang on to those things for a little bit longer than they should. Oh, it's so true, right? It's all people and personalities, right? It's a a big one in our industry. And it's hard sometimes to be um, objective. You know, it, it, it really is. So I think that for me, certainly over a 30 plus year career and you know, having a lot of strong mentors and role models um, in the business is 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 certainly something that uh, has helped me. And you know, your priorities do shift. And who knows? Maybe when I'm seventy, I'm going to go back into you know exploration. Maybe I'm going to go sit on a drill rig. Maybe that's where you know I ultimately want to want to go. I want to come full circle and kind of go back back to the beginning especially when you don't have two pesky kids hanging around you yeah that 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 would that would give you a bit more freedom probably (laughs) and i and i I have the latest uh edition of those sled dogs sitting right beside me right now as we're having this conversation they're fourth and fifth generations removed from that same sled dog thor um who uh, are constantly uh, you know harassing me to take them into the mountains so so these dogs that you now have are going to be well refined spy machines by the time you you hit the field so, so well, well done, no, i think of all the new technology i, I mean it, i can really deploy them with everything i need you know webcams and that's right uh, yeah put them on a drone yeah that, that's exactly. the way to go gps coordinates they can collect a, they can be like my my version of, of the mars rover <laughs> that's right so I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, so you've kind of talked about that this, uh, the industry has to change or the value proposition, I think that it has to change in how mining kind of deals with communities. Is that a big component of how, mm-hmm. you know, like obviously you you set up Lucara in a way that you have this ESG as a fundamental component of that uh, of that company. Do you think that it's more pertinent for you to do something like that, especially in the industry that you're in or in the commodity that you're in? Uh, because maybe people can see the value proposition of different commodities being mined, but in diamonds, do you have to try harder to show that value to the community in a lot of ways? You know, I, I think it depends to a certain degree, you know, where you are. The great thing about diamond mining, and and I think what you're getting at there is this is obviously not something that's essential to our daily lives. It's, That's right. So are we justified in digging a hole in the ground to recover, um, you know, these ancient pieces of carbon for use in jewelry and, and fashion? And I think you only have to look at the example of what Diamonds has done for the Canadian North and done for Botswana to understand um Uh, you know, the positive impacts um, that it can have and the far-reaching impacts that it can have. And, you know, I love to use the example in the NWT uh, around, you know, one of the local villages, still a couple hundred kilometers from the mine, but certainly one of the communities um, that was impacted by the development of the diamond mines. And, you know, before the diamond mines were built, this was a, a small community 
of about 300 people. And they had basically one graduate from high school in any given year. Most students going to high school wouldn't graduate. After the diamond mines were built and after three years of operations, you saw more than 50% of high school students graduating in that village and, and more than half of those then going on to post-secondary education. Now it's almost 100% of students um, becoming, you know, graduating from high school and going on to, to post-secondary uh, education yeah, wow. and then returning to the NWT to be employed in high-paying jobs in that diamond mine. So particularly when you're talking about remote places that don't have a lot of industry uh, or economic development, mining can be incredibly impactful. And if, and if I now turn to Botswana, what's really incredible there is, you know, I, I like to refer to Botswana as the Switzerland of Africa. You know, it is the only Southern African nation that was never colonized. It was a British protectorate, but it was never colonized. Um, and it went from a kingdom to a democracy, really coincident with the discovery of diamonds by De Beers in, in, in the late 60s. And Botswana owned those resources and they used the you know the revenues generated from diamond mining in Botswana to build roads to build schools to develop their economy and today you know Botswana has uh, um, a very good date rate uh, debt rating it is routinely ranked as one of the least corrupt countries and a good place to invest. And it's, it's 50 years of, of diamond mining has, has really built that um, economy. And, and if I look at our own mine in Botswana, we are 98% Botswanan. We have less than 2% of our workforce is in, is in the expat mm -hmm. community. And more importantly, you know, our mine is uh, managed by a, a woman, the first ever woman to manage a diamond mine in Botswana, a woman who was born and educated in Botswana. And so that's something that, you know, we're incredibly proud of. And, and I think that, you know, it's a great testament to what that industry has done for that country. These are high paying jobs. Mm -hmm. You've got a highly educated and skilled workforce that they can now export to other parts of Africa. And, um, you know, they've used those resources wisely and, and are continuing to, to, to reinvest those, those uh, you know, proceeds today. Well, I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of our listeners, if they, if you've never heard of Botswana, you know, like I kind of uh, referenced that by the fact that you have, if you haven't heard of an African country, then that's usually a good thing because they tend to do things pretty well. And, you know, like you said, Botswana, I think, you know, even from the point of where it came out of, uh, the protectorate to being a country and its independence, you know, it's had a very smooth run. And a lot of that is really because they could fund a lot of their activities, particularly on the government side, you know, because of this industry that they generated. Absolutely. Now, I didn't bring up this topic to, to talk about the fact that whether socially we value diamonds or not, because I think you could probably make an argument about that for the gold industry as well. You know, is it really a fundamental social need or is it a, sure. a, a static currency product that we're really mining, right? Yes. But, you know, the reason why I brought this up is, you know, the social view around diamond is kind of built up from the Hollywood version of the Blood Diamonds yes. kind of uh, movie. And, you know, there are stories like Botswana and this story like Canada, which are completely antithetic to that, that storyline. But I don't think they get, um, you know, they, they socially have the same proliferation as the Blood Diamond story. So, so, you know, so maybe as an industry, you know, we should do a better job of kind of talking about the things that we do well. I mean, there's no denying that we do things, some things badly and have done badly. But, you know, there's a lot of good that has kind of come out of this industry as well. And we sometimes don't really talk about that. Uh, very often, I think. Oh, I 100% agree. I think we're actually quite bad at uh, celebrating um, the positives. And we, we need to turn that around. I think that, you know, we are constantly on our back foot sort of defending what we do instead of 
really promoting um, all the good that we do. And, you know, in, in the diamond industry in particular, you know, we, we have recently rebranded um, an industry association called the Natural Diamond Council. And that is one of the things that they are really trying to do now is to, to, to kind of get the, the facts out there about the positive contributions of, of diamond mining um, to, you know, to make it, you know, clear. And we, we recently undertook a documentary in Botswana, for example, with an independent, you know, documentary filmmaker um, who came down to kind of look at diamond mining in Botswana. And, and, and it was amazing to see um, how um, widely that, you know, eventually got distributed and, and it, it really developed a lot of awareness and, and people were surprised. People really are not kind of aware. And, and you're right, uh, as an, you know, the mining industry as a whole needs to do a better job of, of telling, uh, you know, the good stories. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, like sometimes we're maybe a prisoner of our past in this way that, you know, we don't want to talk about this stuff because people are going to bring up the bad stuff. Um, but yeah, I look at, you know, like look at the fashion industry, you know, it had a terrible uh, legacy issues or had terrible legacy issues, uh, you know, in the 90s kind of around, you know, like clothes being made in sweatshops, you know, animal testing and all these kind of serious kind of issues that were put in front of this industry. And, you know, they navigated it largely successfully to a, to a large part and, and are now more sustainable from a social point of view with the, with the stuff that they do. Um, See, so, you know, I think we could probably do the same in, in the mining space as well. It's just that the only part that I think is we just got to be honest that, you know, we did screw things up previously and you know, we got things uh, really bad in the past, but uh, a lot of industries did. I mean, I don't think we are unique in that sense. No, you're exactly right. I think it you cannot deny uh, impacts. And, and I think that message is, is really important. You know, we have learned a lot you know, understand, um, you know, what kind of an impact this industry can have. And we now also understand how to better mitigate that impact. So it's really not about saying we're going to have zero impact or denying that there is um, certainly some legacy assets um, that we're not proud of. It's about recognizing that we have evolved and that we have, you know, embraced uh, the need to to do better and to you know continuously strive to do better, and and it, and it's really you know recognizing that that mining is is something that you know society requires and needs you know as we often like to say the PDAC if you can't grow it you have to mine it, mm -hmm. and so how do we do that in a responsible way that really you know minimizes the impacts and, um, and, and, and really meets the objectives of all the stakeholders. And I think that that's really what we're, you know, we have to do as an industry today is we've got to strike that balance. Um, and, and everybody has to look at that, you know, as a consumer, we have to look at that, you know, what are our priorities and, you know, what's important to us and, you know, how do we make a decision to develop uh, a resource or not develop a resource and, you know, what's the criteria and what are the priorities? And I think we all have to be, you know, open and honest and having those discussions and recognize that, um, you know, some developments are just not going to happen if they're in areas that are too sensitive or that can't be that can't be developed in in a way that really manages and mitigates um and i think as an industry we understand that i think yeah i mean i think your point is exactly right that you know we just have to be a little bit more honest about the fact that uh yeah, as an industry that not every development that you have is going to have the same value proposition that we think it's going to have the same value proposition to local stakeholders that we think it does. And I think this is the space of where ESG, I think, is becoming more and more important is that, you know, like if you if you are a country, then you know, for a long, long time, you know, mining's biggest kind of value proposition was jobs yes. to a large degree. But in, in the in the current world that you know, like if you're like Finland, you could get a thousand jobs by starting up a mine or you could get a thousand jobs by putting up an Amazon factory. It's like, and it's totally okay for that society to decide that actually, you know, we want to preserve the environment. So we'll probably take the thousand jobs that come from an Amazon factory. And I think that's an okay proposition for societies to make. 
uh, you know, in remote areas, I think that's a little bit more challenging because there's not a lot of factories being set up in, you know, in the middle of nowhere. So, so I think, you know, we just have to be a little bit savvier about the fact that the value proposition of developments will look different to local stakeholders as it might look to your shareholders. And, and you have to kind of make that balance uh, how you go about it, I think. Most definitely. And, uh, you, you know, you think about new technology is a, is a great example. I mean, everybody recognizes that the world is on the path towards decarbonization. Mm-hmm. Obviously, mining has a very important role to play in that journey. There's no way to get there without the specialty metals that you need for batteries to achieve those goals. So I, I think it's about building awareness, first of all, um, you know, with not only consumers, but I, I think, you know, all kind of stakeholders out there today and 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 what that transformation journey, you know, is going to look like and being realistic about it, the the consequences of those types of decisions. And so, you know, I, I for one, you know, fully supportive, but everyone just has to understand, you know, what the consequences of those decisions are going to be. Yeah, maybe that's a the a question for you as well, is that do you think it, we have to come to the realization that sometimes, you know, like as mining companies, we're going to have to leave some value on the table uh, to be sustainable in in kind of the longer term. You know, like if we can make a dollar out of something, uh, maybe we shouldn't try to to make that full dollar. Maybe leaving 10 cents on the table for, uh, you know, benefits to local stakeholders allows us to be a lot more sustainable in the long run. You know, like, do you think that mindset has to kind of come to the realization that maybe, you know, sometimes we might have to leave some value on the table to encourage us to to be able to work in certain areas? Well, absolutely. In fact, I think we've, we're, we're, we're long there. You know, I think that there, there really is um, that realization. I think mining, you know, it's interesting. I think other industries, as, as you pointed out, are actually catching up um, in respect of ESG. Uh, you know, this is something that the mining industry is, is you know, long embraced um, in some shape or form. You know, the focus today um, has definitely shifted more from, you know, the environment piece, which is which has long been, I think, the priority out of ESG in years gone to more of the social and governance piece now. So we're kind of seeing that that movement towards um, communities and sustainability and social goals. And so I, I, I think, think that's a great point, actually. I think that's an excellent point. But, but on the environmental piece, I think we've long understood that, you know, we have to strike the right balance um, and that, you know, we have to identify um, all potential impacts and work to mitigate them in a, in a way that's meaningful in order to justify any development. So, you know, we're, we're definitely there, but the, but the social piece and the governance piece, I think is, is where most of the focus right now is and where we're seeing a lot of change and a lot of evolution. And quite frankly, I, I think that is good as well. That was the end of part one of our two-part interview with Ira Thomas. Here's a preview of part two. Yes, I've, I've had some really interesting opportunities throughout my career and I've done a, a lot of incredible things and had the opportunity to be involved in a lot of amazing projects and, and I don't think any of it is diminished because of my gender. I think these are all um, experiences that really have no relation to my, to my gender, I guess. At the end of the day, the bottom line for me is that in any project I've taken on or, or any new challenge, it's really been about measuring, you know, success on the basis of whether I'm, I'm actually doing better for my stakeholders and, and shareholders. This episode of Exploration Radio was produced by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford, edited by Sean Jeffrey, and recorded remotely in April and May of 2021. This episode was sponsored by the SCG, the Society of Economic Geologists. If you like this podcast, then consider becoming a sponsor to help us continue producing more of this content. You can email us on info at explorationradio.com or check out www.explorationradio.com to find out more about us. You can also reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, let's keep exploring.